Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In with me, Paul Johnson, and I'm joined today by two experts in trade and in particular the impact of trade between countries on inequality. I'm joined by Peter Lavelle, who's an Associate Director at the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and Penny Goldberg, Professor of Economics at Yale University and formerly Chief Economist at the World Bank. And we're looking at the impact of trade on inequality in the context of the big and very exciting IFS Deaton Review of Inequality, this big review that we're doing, chaired by Nobel Laureate Angus Deaton. Penny is a colleague of mine on the panel overseeing that, and Peter, the co-author of the chapter within that on trade on inequality. Before we kick off, first of all, apologies for the fact and if you were looking forward to listening to us uh, last week, I'm afraid the illness intervened. So to those of you who can't do without your fortnightly dose of the IFS zooms in, you'll have to make do with this slightly delayed edition. So let's kick off. I mean, we all know, I think, that the last 30 or 40 years have been characterized by what's been known as a period of hyper-globalization with huge increases in trade, particularly between low-income and high-income countries, and particularly, of course, trade with China. And that's led to certain tensions, um, the, particularly the US-China trade war, uh, and uh, indeed um, big changes in the UK's relationship with the European Union, which of course is by far our biggest trading partner. And all of that has had an impact on all of us. And we're here particularly interested in the question of trade and inequality. And let me come to you first, Penny, to really ask a question about why trade and inequality? We think about trade in many ways, but it's not the first thing that springs to mind, perhaps for many people, when looking at explanations for inequality. So why, why, why trade and inequality? There are three main reasons. The first one, Paul, you mentioned that this is not the first thing that comes to people's mind when they think about inequality. But this is actually something that immediately comes to mind to the mind of a trade economist. Because trade theory teaches us that while trade is good, is beneficial for the average person, trade also creates winners and losers. This is one of the basic insights of economic theory. So whenever we're interested in inequality, it's very natural to turn to trade as a potential source of this inequality. Second, as you mentioned, the last few decades have seen a tremendous increase in global trade. So especially imports in advanced countries from low-income countries, and especially China. And at the same time, we saw a very large increase in inequality, many different dimensions of inequality. So we have this temporal correlation. And of course, we know that correlation doesn't imply causation, but a, a very strong correlation is a flag. So again, it's very natural to ask the question, are these two phenomena linked? And the third reason is that whether it's true or not, there is a, a very wide perception in many countries in Europe and in the United States that open borders, whether this is through trade or through immigration, have been responsible for the stagnation in real wages, for the demise of unions, uh, for, for the hardship that workers have faced in these countries. And this, in turn, has had important political consequences. We saw parties, both at the extreme right and the extreme left, exploiting this view. 
Uh, we saw Brexit in the United Kingdom. We saw the increase in tariffs that you mentioned uh, in the United States. In other European countries, we see we saw a backlash against immigration. So again, whether this is true or not, this is something that we need to take seriously. If we think that there are benefits to trade and to open borders, and we want to, to keep these benefits, it's important to also address the potential concerns that people have about the unequal effects of trade. So lots of reasons to think that trade benefits us on average, but also lots of reasons to think that there will be winners and losers from within that. I mean, Peter, what, what do we know about who the winners and losers have been, particularly in the UK, but in rich countries generally? Let's start with the winners. I mean, who, who has got better off as a result of this big increase in international trade? Well, the standard trade theory that Penny talked about suggests that the winners from trade should be, or in particular growth in trade between poor countries and rich countries, should be in rich countries, those skilled workers who aren't directly competing with imports coming in from low countries, which predominantly will be produced using low skilled labor, will be the skilled workers in those rich countries who benefit from the lower prices, but don't face that increase in competition. That's what led economists to try to assess trade's impacts on inequality by comparing real wages for skilled workers and low-skilled workers. However, it didn't look, um, at least when economists were first looking at these things in the 90s and 2000s, like trade played an important role in explaining the growth in the gap, the wage premium between uh, college-educated and non-college-educated workers. What's since emerged, a lot to do with research by my co-author on the chapter, uh, David Dorn, is that while it wasn't, there weren't broad impacts uh, of trade on different groups, there were some quite disruptive impacts on particular industries and particular regions. So low-income countries, in particular uh, China, specialised in exports of particular goods and parts of the UK, the United States, other Western European countries, both geographically and in terms of particular types of workers, specialised in producing those goods. So it looks like in terms of the losers, there were highly concentrated groups of workers who, who lost out. And when you look at the evidence of how these workers fared after that uh, big increase in imports, we see them not doing very well on a lot of dimensions, but sort of employment, on earnings, but also other uh, impacts on, on health and other uh, social outcomes. Just to sort of break that down a bit, so the, so in one sense, everyone gains from trade um, because it takes prices down. That, that that's the, sort of the, the first point. But then among the workers, there's a group who, because they're being, as it were, outcompeted by um, uh, people in other countries, they're, they're, they're the losers. Yes, that's broadly correct. Uh, it's not a foregone conclusion that everyone will benefit from the price reductions you get from cheaper goods uh, to the same extent. So it might be the case that you know, rich people happen to consume more of the goods that are imported than poor people or vice versa. When uh, we looked at the evidence on who we thought were benefiting from increases in cheaper imports in the 2000s from China in particular, what we found was that poorer consumers tend to benefit more from imports of, of for example, clothing and textiles, where they tend to spend more of their budgets. But richer consumers tended to benefit more from the fact they spent more on, on electronics and luxury products of that, which also came from China. 
and when you compare the impacts across those different different groups, it, it, it worked out quite similarly. So it wasn't the case that those poorer workers who also tended to lose out from, from uh, uh, growing import competition received greater benefits from lower prices than, than the rich consumers. And what do we know about the scale of the losses for those um, lower skilled, less well-off workers? I mean, do we know how much about how many of them lost their jobs or how big the impact might have been on their wages? I mean, either in the UK or elsewhere? In the UK, we did an exercise suggest that between 150 and 350,000 manufacturing workers were uh, displaced by growing import competition. So so a couple of hundred thousand, something like a couple of hundred thousand people lost their jobs. They have got other jobs. That was the cost in one sense. And the benefit was we're all a little bit better off because we're paying less for the stuff that we're importing. It's an important message, I think, that, you know, these cheaper goods we're getting came at the cost of maybe up to 350,000 people's jobs. Is that, again, is is that a reasonable way to look at that? Yes. I mean, you have to remember, this is the degree to which the manufacturing sector shrank that we've attributed to to import competition. At the upper end of the range, it was around 350,000 workers. These are people whose jobs have been displaced. So as you say, they may have found work uh, elsewhere. uh, And that's that's part of the cost of of globalization. So they may not have found equally well-paid work. Equally well-paid work, there would have been cost to them finding new work. But then on the other side, there were these benefits to consumers that we also document and those represent the benefits of uh, increased trade between rich and poor countries. We estimate the scale of those benefits as well. And between the period we're looking at, between 1999 and 2007, which is, happens to be a period of most rapid growth of imports from China to the UK, those benefits amounted to around £400 per family over, over that period. That's £400 per year? Yes. Yeah, so over the, over the whole period, the, the cost of their basket was, was £400 less. Um, as a result of of these cheaper imports coming in. Penny, I mean, obviously, people have looked at some of this in the US perspective as well. And indeed, our chairman on the Deaton Review, Angus Deaton, has um, suggested that the the concentrated cost of some of the additional trade with China on particular communities has been very big indeed. I agree with this. And this has been a, a message... Uh, that was quite uh, uncomfortable to many economists. To add to what was said before, we all benefit. We all believe very strongly that trade and openness is beneficial to an economy. And you, you mentioned the price effects, but in addition to the price effects, which is something that we can hope to quantify more or less. There are many challenges, but but still, with a careful analysis and with a lot of data, we can try to put some numbers to the price effects. Uh, in addition to these price effects, there are also other effects, dynamic effects, long-run effects, that may be harder to quantify, but are nevertheless important. So, for example, trade exposes countries to more competition. It forces countries to to be on their toes, to try to innovate, to stay ahead of the game, to stay at the frontier of technology. Without any external pressure, without competition, it's not clear that this is going to happen. It's very hard to quantify this channel, but... We all believe, based on first principles, that at some level it is important that import competition with low-wage countries has contributed to innovation, to technology adoption in the United States and and, and in Europe. So so no one denies these benefits. But at the same time, we've seen uh, displacement, we've seen disruption, and this has been concentrated. And as Peter said, 
the big insight that research has had in the last 10 years is that this concentration um, applies to, to space. So it's, it's, the, the negative effects are spatially concentrated in particular communities. Um, I emphasize that because this is one dimension of inequality that previous work had not focused on. So traditionally, we focused on the differences between educated and less educated workers, so skilled and non-skilled workers. We did not focus on the differences across different communities. And the reason for that was that the premise among economists was that it was easy for people to move in space. So if an area, if your district, if your community is adversely impacted by trade or some other some, some other shock, then you pack up and you go somewhere else and you seek a job in this other community that is doing better. And uh, what this research has demonstrated that this is definitely not the case, that people are not mobile. Even within countries, there is very little mobility. We still need to understand why this is so, but the fact is it is so. And that, and because of that, we've seen uh, starting with the global financial crisis in the United States, but also uh, as a result of trade, we've seen that whenever there is a negative demand shock, this, uh, the effects of this shock tend to persist and they, they, they tend to be, as you mentioned, specially concentrated with, with many knock-on effects. Um, and can you, so you, you talk about spatial um, concentration. I don't know whether you or perhaps Peter could just put a bit of colour on that, because certainly some of the work that Hank Steeton and others have, have done suggests that that, you know, that can have a really, I mean, really bad effect on those local communities. First of all, what do we mean by communities? One aspect of David Dawn's work that was very surprising to me is that they found this spatial concentration to apply to commuting zones in the United States. States. This is a very narrow definition of the spatial unit. And it's really surprising that people would not move across commuting zones. Um, so, And then what the work has documented is that first we saw job dis displacement. So people lost their jobs. This is something that you might expect. Wages also stagnated. But then there were uh, follow-up social effects. We saw crime in these areas increasing. We saw mental illness in these areas increasing. We saw many of the negative health effects that uh, Angus Deaton and Anne Case talk about in their books being concentrated in precisely those communities that were adversely, among other things, they were adversely affected by trade. And I don't want to, 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 to imply here that trade was the only culprit, that, that trade was responsible for the deaths of despair, there were certainly other factors, including supply-side factors. There were doctors who were prescribing opioids uh, uh, in a very irresponsible way. So there were supply-side factors as well as demand-side factors. But nevertheless, uh, there has been also a very strong correlation between the adverse effects of trade in these communities and all these negative effects that Angus Deaton talked about. So, so Penny, we, we've talked about the negatives here. We've talked about, you know, in the UK, potentially hundreds of thousands of people losing their jobs and probably more in the US and other developed countries. We've talked about the scale of the impact this can have on individuals and communities. I mean, is it worth it? I mean, was it a mistake to allow globalisation to happen in the way that it has happened over the last 20 or 30 years? 
My answer is definitely not. It, it was not a mistake to encourage trade, to encourage open borders. Perhaps what was a mistake was to completely dismiss any concerns about potentially adverse effects of trade on inequality. What perhaps was also a mistake is that many of these changes happened too fast without giving countries and communities time to adjust. So I think if we were to do this all over again, we might have taken more time to think carefully about the consequences of opening up that fast. I think that we may, we may question that part, uh, but not the fact that we opened up. I think uh, no matter how many concerns we have about inequality, it's also undeniable that trade and openness have had significant, significant beneficial effects on the world economy. So both on rich countries and also on poorer countries. So it was worth doing despite the, uh, the, the costs that people have faced. But uh, as we've seen, there's clearly been some political backlash against those costs. I mean, what, are, what are the lessons for the, for the future? I mean, we don't want the world to close down. We don't want to move away from international free trade and globalization. So do we know much about how to do it better in the future in a way that won't have these negative effects? So I, I believe there are some lessons we've learned. Uh, one I already mentioned, we need to be, we need to acknowledge the fact that trade does have distributional impacts. This is something that was always, that was often denied, even though economic theory, trade theory, explicitly teaches us that trade does have these distributional impacts. So the first step, I would say, is to acknowledge that there is a potential problem. Second, I think we need to have policies in mind that may help with the transition. At this point, we all agree that the solution to the problem is not the return to the past. Reshoring or bringing heavy industry back to the United States or to Britain is not the solution. It's not going to make workers better off. And at the same time, it may conflict with other objectives that government, governments have. So for example, environmental objectives or the desire to improve the quality of jobs. No one would think that mining jobs or jobs in heavy industry are good jobs from today's point of view. So I don't think that's the way uh, to, to solve the current concerns. Um, what's, what's, a, what's a better way? A better way is to help the transition, to make transitions easier for people. And how we exactly do that, this is a question for policy, right? There we need a lot of experimentation. We need to experiment with different ways of assisting people with different programs and see which programs work well and which programs don't. But another general lesson we learned, again, is that in many cases, even when people, when governments mean well, it, it might be hard to identify the winners and the losers. Uh, it takes some time. So I mentioned one example. Until very recently, we always thought it would be very easy for people to move across space, to move to a different city, to, within a country. So economists never worried about this very much. In the meantime, we realized this is actually an issue. If you believe this is an issue, place-based policies may be called for place-based policies, that's, that's a loaded term in Europe <laughs> because they're often associated with huge inefficiencies. But design place-based place policies that make sense is something that might help. 
developing better social protection systems, you know, systems that ensure that people don't fall through the cracks if they're faced with an adverse shock, again, would help. And they would help because they wouldn't require one to identify immediately what the source of the income loss was. That's the problem with current schemes. For example, the trade adjustment assistance in the United States is tied very closely to you having lost your job because of trade. It takes some work to figure this out. It takes some time. But in the meantime, people fall through the cracks. So having a strong social protection system might help one to uh, solve this issue. But but overall, I would say the one big lesson we learned is that, that we need to, to think about the distributional consequences in advance. You know, not go not go head first with the attitude, let's liberalize, let's open up the economy, and we'll worry about the negative impacts later. Uh, this wouldn't work in the future. Yeah, there's a really strong message there, and I think uh, you could, could use that message for quite a lot of policies that economists and others have talked about over the over the years, and uh, indeed. I suspect some people from the last Labour government think that about the scale of immigration from Eastern Europe in the early 2000s, not the issue of it, but the speed of change that it engendered. Place-based policies, Peter, of course, are very much top of the agenda here at the moment as government thinks about, in inverted commas, levelling up and policies to achieve that. I mean, you looked a little in, in, in the work that you did at some of these policies that might mitigate the impact of globalization. I mean, where, where did you end up on, in your view, on what might be effective going forward? I mean, do we yet have a good grasp of how you can actually mitigate these effects? So I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to disappoint you and say I'm not sure we do have a, a good grasp on the basis of current evidence on which sort of policies, be they training policy or sort of pace-based policies, are particularly effective at helping people get back into work, helping people complete these transitions, as Penny says. And that's because the evidence we have on a range of place-based or training policies is quite mixed. There have definitely been uh, some policies that show some evidence of uh, having been effective in terms of what they set out to achieve, but then a large number of policies that have also not turned out to be cost-effective or have come with a heavy administrative burden uh, and so on. And it's not really clear on the basis of, of the current evidence that we can point to a particular set of things that work very well uh, and, and uh, a set of policies that don't work as well. So this is an area where we do need to think about impacts in uh, advance, as, as Penny suggests. But we also need a, a degree of evidence gathering and experimentation and uh, humility when it comes to understanding how we should respond to these sorts of rapid changes. I should add that we've been talking about uh, rapid changes associated with trade and trade shocks. A lot of these are associated with, with, for example, the rise of China in the 2000s. Looking ahead, it's not clear that there's another big developing country in the next 10 years that's going to explode on the scene in quite the way that China did with quite the same disruptive effects, particularly as a lot of manufacturing uh, employment in developed countries has 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 already been kind of hollowed out, if not by trade shocks, by 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 automation. But there are another uh, a series of shocks that might have similarly spatially concentrated impacts that we ought to be keeping an eye on. And these are, as, as Penny said, for example, things to do with the transition to net zero. We're going to increase the cost of energy greatly. Is this going to have particular effects on employment in particular areas for particular types of workers? 
these are things that we need to be thinking about now. We need to be thinking about uh, how we're going to help people adjust out of those industries and out of those uh, areas, if necessary, uh, ahead of time. So that's exactly the issue I wanted to pick up from here, Penny. I mean, what uh, what next in terms of globalization? I mean, have we, have we been through a one-off shock as China has entered the, the trading world? And as far as globalization is concerned, at least, we're now in a period of relative calm. Or are we going to be moving backwards as trade barriers go up? Or is there is, is there more globalization coming over the horizon? Well, no one has a crystal ball, but I wouldn't say that globalization has run its course. I mean, I, I fully agree that right now we are uh, in a calm period, partly because there was this backlash against hyper-globalization. But the new frontier in globalization is the service sector. The service sector remains highly protected. There is relatively little trade in services, even though it's very hard to measure. But suppose we liberalize service trade. There was true free trade in services across the world. The consequences would be mind-boggling. And that's one reason no one wants to, to go in that direction very fast. But imagine that you can um, hire a doctor or a lawyer in another country. You can, you can hire their services uh, in a different country or an architect. Uh, there will always be some services that require the person to be on site, but there are many other services that do not require the on-site presence of the service provider. So if this happens, then we are talking about a very different world. Uh, there are many good reasons that this has not happened yet. One is that the sector is protected. The, sec the other reason is that for service trade to become global, there would have to be a certain degree of regulatory convergence across countries. So right now, the regulations are very different, and this reflects partly different value systems in different countries and different preferences. But to a certain extent, it also reflects protection, you know, because precisely because people are concerned about what would happen if all of a sudden you opened up the borders and you let service trade be completely free. Another issue that Peter mentioned is carbon pricing and uh, the way we deal with the environment in the future. So if, if, if there is the devil in all these things is in the details. So again, no one knows precisely how all these carbon taxes will be implemented at this point. But the one thing that we can anticipate is that carbon prices are going to change relative prices across countries. And this is going to have very big distributional impacts across countries, but even within countries across different groups. And you can think of carbon pricing the same way we think about trade. Uh, it has enormously beneficial effects to the world as a whole, but the distributional effects are going to be enormous. And we have to make sure, as we think about the future, that whatever beneficial effects we want to realize, they don't happen at the expense of a huge increase in inequality that may bring the world as we know it down. Yeah, a really important cautionary note. The uh, It's so easy, whether you're talking about trade or immigration or climate change uh, or, or any other policy, to think about the obvious big overall economic benefits and forget that I mean, as we know, economic losses to individuals are much more hardly felt than benefits uh, enjoyed. 
And particularly when those are very concentrated losses, when they're loss of jobs, when they're loss of livelihoods. And given the, I think, slightly disappointing state of our knowledge on actually how effectively to protect or, or to support individuals and communities who are badly affected by some of these changes, even though we don't know those, strikes me that the things we need to be very careful of are speed of change in particular. But also, and it's been very interesting listening to both of you, also we as economists really do need to sort of question some of our basic assumptions. It was very striking reading some drafts of the chapter that Peter and David Dawn wrote. How, how bizarre, from today's perspective, some of the literature uh, the economic literature of 20, 25 years ago looked, as you were saying, Penny, earlier on, just this assumption that people would move if local areas are affected. Um, just the assumption, uh, almost, that trade would help, if not everyone, uh, at least it would not be too difficult to offset some of these negative effects. But I think we are at the end, sadly, of our um, allotted half hour or so. Uh, so thank you ever so much to Peter Lavelle and to Penny Goldberg for an incredibly interesting discussion about trade and inequality. It's one of nearly 20 studies that we are doing as part of the IFS Deaton review of inequalities, covering everything from things like trade and the role of firms, things you might not expect to be central for studies on inequality to things you were more likely to think are central issues around race and gender, uh, income inequality, taxes, welfare, education, and so on. And we'll be covering more of those topics in later editions of the IFS Zooms In. But for now, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back with you in the new year.